America. Live and underway here on ESPN Plus on a Monday night, episode 301. Back alongside Hercules Gomez, I'm Sebi Salazar. Good to have you back. We missed you for episode 300 out there uh, in San Diego. But you, of course, as we can see from your shirt, uh, we're in Miami for the big birthday party, the celebration 20 years of ESPN Deportes. How was the fiesta there on South Beach? It was beautiful. You guys will get to see that uh, the first week of January. It's a special 20-year uh, show um, that we had fun in. Uh, by the way, there's no chance, there's no chance that Tom Brady knows anybody who was in that. Like, he doesn't know who uh, Fonzie is, he doesn't know Mociala, like, there's, there's no chance he knew anybody there. Tom Brady is, is a championship investor, okay, buddy? So... I mean, Tom Brady knows his football. Not Bundesliga. <laughs> okay. Okay, all right. We'll, uh, we'll take our hack to Tom Brady another time here on Football America. JJ Watt probably does. We've got uh, a great list of guests. John Harks, the National Soccer Hall of Famer. He's going to join us, talk a little bit about his coaching journey, but also the U.S. men's national team, MLS. You know me, promotion, relegation, made sure to get that in there. We're also going to hear from Nikki Bandini in just a few minutes. Uh, she's going to join us to talk about the many Americans and Mexicans playing their trade right now in Syria, and we'll have full reaction to all of the action from the weekend NWSL championship in San Diego, the USL championship final, uh, and of course the MLS Cup playoffs, which are rolling along uh, nice and slowly. But let's start Trucking. with the U.S. men's national team roster. That's right, uh, Greg Berhalter calling in his list for the upcoming games against Trinidad and Tobago. Remember, it's a two-leg quarterfinal for a spot in the CONCACAF Nations League semis and that ticket to next summer's Copa America. 20 of the 24 players from the last window called in. There are some key absences. No Christian Pulisic, no Tim Weah. They're out with injuries. Johnny Cardozo, also a late scratch. He's withdrawn with an ankle injury. Just one MLS player on this roster. That's Miles Robinson. A couple notes, both Aronson brothers make the team. So does uh, Alex Sendejas, Kevin Paredes as well. There's some more options out wide. Balgan and Pepe are two nines. Your goalies, Matt Turner, Ethan Horvath, and Gaga Slonina. Let's hear from the man who made the roster, Greg Berhalter. Here he is. Yeah, you know, both of them, um, it, it's not too seriously, it's not too serious, but unfortunately um, aren't, aren't going to be able to participate in this camp. And, um, you know, we see them on track to get back to play soon, but, um, you know, it, it's too too short of a deadline, so they won't be involved. Yeah, you know, e Ethan's situation is, is temporary. We hope in the winter things will be sorted out where he will start to get game time. Um, I had a conversation with Matt. I called him immediately. And, and this is part of playing in the, the best league in the world, right? I mean, this is all part of a, a player's journey. There's ups and downs. And for him, it's about being mentally strong enough to endure this. And, and you've seen it. Um, you see it every week. Uh, players get dropped. And it's it, for him, it's about having the right mentality. And, you know, we we spoke about it. He's refocused and, and he's competing every single day in training and wait until he can get his, an opportunity again. All right, so Greg Berhalter clearly focused on the goalie situation there, Herc. We're focused on the absence of Christian Pulisic and Tim Weah. With those two guys out, who do you think has to step up here against Trinidad and Tobago? 
Yeah, I got a few names, and I'll, I'll try to keep it as briefly uh, brief as possible. Let's go with the first one. It's got to be uh, Fuller and Balogun. Listen, Fuller and Balogun's a guy who's kind of fell off the picture, if you will, for a bit. Uh, four games without a goal for Monaco. Uh, in those four games, one of those games he got pulled at half, minute 45. And another one of those games, he actually only played 17 minutes. It's a guy that uh, maybe was at his height last season. And we've been giving him the benefit of the doubt with Ricardo Pepe uh, kind of being in that substitute role for both club and country, but this is a guy that absolutely needs to step up. Another one is uh, Gio Reyna. Gio Reyna, who needs to kind of seek refuge with the U.S. men's national team, a la Christian Pulisic at his time at Chelsea, when he wasn't getting that playing time because he's not been playing for uh, Edin Terzic in Dortmund. You need to go to the national team and make that your refuge. Get sharp there. Get confidence there. He needs to do the same thing. He's not been playing. And lastly, I'll go with Weston McKinney. And the reason I picked Weston McKinney mm. is Weston's one of those guys that, regardless of the club situation, whether it's good, bad, whether it's Juve, Leeds, comes to the national team and kind of just relishes these games. And he's being productive. He's scoring goals. He's giving assists. He's being productive on the defensive end. And leadership. There's no Tyler Adams. He's injured. There's no Christian Pulisic. He's injured. So he has to be that de facto leader for Greg Berhalter. Those are three names. And I will go with this. The last one I will add there. I would like to see a situation where Serginho Dest, in the absence of these true wingers, gets a run as a winger. That's right. Ooh. That's right. Anthony Robinson one side and Joe Scally the other. And let Serginho, mm -hmm. right now, we know how confident he is. We know how much it's a appointment viewing with 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 uh, PSV. Yes, that's right. Producer Beth is right now said we've seen his hype videos. And I love it. I hate it, but I love it. Let the man do what he does going forward at the national team level in this game. I don't mind it. I actually love it. Those are four names that I think need to, in the absence of these two players, step up. For those wondering where we were seeing Serginho Des highlight reels, it was on his very own Instagram. You know, Correct. if no one's going to be your PR machine, then you better uh, do it yourself. So, yeah, I, I'm interested that you say Serginho Des further up the field. Of the names that you mentioned, Herc, when I think of replacing Christian Pulisic and Tim Way and what they bring to this team, I think they most consistently bring danger, and they're the kind of two guys you would most pick to create goals or at least create goal-scoring chances. So of the four that you name, I think the, the next best creator, I think we'd agree here, is Gio Reyna. So in terms of actually what you need a guy to do, a guy who is, because after that, after those three, if I'm going way up Pulisic and Reyna, I think there's a significant drop-off to your next kind of playmaker. So it's going to be on Gio Reyna here to really step up. And then it's to the other guys in that position, right? Like, who's going to get the minutes that Pulisic and Way are vacating? We've seen Kevin Paredes get called in. We've got both Aronson brothers on this team, although Paxton's listed as a midfielder, uh, Brendan listed out wide. And then Alex Zendejas, Alejandro Zendejas, as we see him all the time with Club America, who's playing very, very well right now. Uh, it sounds like you might want to see Dest in at least one of the games, but if you're going to have Dest at right back, let's say, to start the first leg against Trinidad, who of the guys that are in this team get the start with Pulisic and way out. Brendan Aronson. And that's probably not a name that a lot of people want to see get that start, but mm. this is a player that... Why? Why do you think people don't want to see Brendan Aronson get well, the start? Well, I, I think people are, are going to point out how he struggled at Leeds and how he's been struggling at Union Berlin and, and how maybe he, he's kind of fallen off... Um, passing the eye test for a lot of fans, but he's still been a very productive player with the U.S. men's national team and a player that I think Greg Berhalter thoroughly has confidence in. So he's a player that's going to be slotted in there who needs to take advantage of this opportunity. There you have it. So uh, plenty of options on the wing. We'll see if any of them 
are as good as Christian Pulisic and Tim Whale. Let's run it back with one option who's probably more in the middle, but that's who's going to start us off on this edition of Run It Back. That's Malik Tillman with his fifth goal of the season for PSV. And look who had the assist, Herc, Serginho Dest. I'm telling you what, Serginho Dest is must-see TV every weekend with PSV. Uh, but Malik Tillman, who could have predicted he would have been scoring at this rate? That's right, I did. I picked him, not you, me. <laughs> five goals in just over 500 minutes. Uh, PSV 4-0 winners on the day. Joe Scali and Borussia Mönchengladbach, they were 4-0 winners as well over Wolfsburg, and Scali got his first assist of the season. Yeah, we, we talk a lot about, you know, the, the Serginho Dest, the Anthony Robinsons, all these different players. Joe Scali just quietly keeps doing what he's doing. He's playing. And then Rokas Pukstas, remember this name from the uh, U20 team, where he got his third goal of the season in the Croatian League for Hedek Split. Listen to what I'm saying. Puskas like for Puskas. Puskas like for Puskas. That's a there? pretty good goal there. Yeah, that's what I At the uh, near post. Did you not Hedek get what Split's, I said? Uh, 3 1 oh. winners on the day. Here's a couple uh, other notable weekend performances from Americans abroad, including uh, our good friend Johan Gomez, who got a goal there. And uh, Terrence Boyd, Anthony Robinson, Brian Reynolds uh, also chalking up assists for Americans in the European theater. All right, as we mentioned, no Christian Pulisic this window for the United States. The official diagnosis from his club, a muscle fatigue. He was subbed off with what looked like a hamstring cramp in AC Milan's Champions League win uh, over PSG. He missed Milan's game over the weekend. Actually, kind of a crazy match. They were up 2-0 against Lecce. Blew the lead in the second half and had to settle for a draw two to two. We never settle here on Football America, so we're thrilled to welcome into the show now Nikki Bandini. You've seen her before on ESPN FC. You probably read her work over at ESPN.com. Nikki joins us from Europe, so staying up late. We've been trying to get you on the show for months, Nikki. It is great to finally have you with us here on Football Americas. Welcome. It's great to be here as well, and it's a little late, but I think most uh, football journalists end up being at least a little bit night owls as well. There you go. There you go. Certainly, uh, if you're watching Football Americas, we are very much a, a night owl show. So, <laughs> as you know, here in the United States, I'm sure your Twitter following over the last couple months has proven this. We are obsessed with Christian Pulisic. Uh, let's start there. I go back to the game against Napoli when he was subbed out at the half. Obviously, there was an injury concern there. But I'm following the reaction online. It's a lot of U.S. fans who are very worried. But, Nikki, there were also a lot of Milan fans that were very worried. He's gotten off to a great start there, hasn't he? What are not just the fans, but I think the Italian press saying about Pulisic's first few months in Milan? Yeah, well, it was a perfect start, wasn't it? He scored in both of his first two games. He was Captain America, which, of course, that nickname's followed him everywhere. But it's, I don't know, I think it's a bit more exciting. In, in Italy, there hasn't been a big tradition of American players. Before this re this season, there hasn't been a big tradition of American players making it in the States. So he came in, he had that fast start, and, and he absolutely did capture people's uh, attention. And he really provided Milan with something that they've been needing as well, which is some offensive balance. One of the, the big problems that Milan ran into last season is they became very predictable because they had Teo Hernandez and Rafael Leao on the left-hand side. And whenever they needed a goal, they would channel their play down those two players. And look, they're extraordinary footballers, but when you know that's what's coming as an opponent, you can adjust to it quite effectively. So Pulisic being on the right has given them much more balance. And I think individually, you could certainly say he's had a very impressive start. He's looked great. I mean, Milan's very scary in transition. You've got Leao, Hernandez, Giroud, uh, Pulisic running at you, and he seems to be fit throughout the start of this season and has Pioli's confidence 
But Pioli doesn't have the confidence of the people. He's under a lot of pressure. Mm. How much trouble would Christian Pulisic be if Pioli were to leave because he finally found a coach who believes in him? Yeah, I think maybe this same discussion will apply a bit to Yunus Musa as well when we get to him. But both of the Americans in Milan have been very enthusiastic about working with Pioli about how he's been coaching them. He's been enthusiastic about them. And there has been this increasingly loud talk that Stefano Pioli's job may be under pressure. I, I think some of that is still premature. Look, Milan have, have gone four games in Serie A without winning. It's worth mentioning the first two of those games are against Juventus and Napoli, so not so shocking. I think it's compounded by the fact there was this humiliating 3-0 defeat to Paris Saint-Germain in the Champions League in the middle of all that. They did also then go and beat Paris Saint-Germain back at San Siro, which I think seemed like it was moving things back in the right direction. But yes, they then had this incredible collapse from 2-0 up against Lecce at the weekend. So it's been a mixed bag. But I think that the fan reaction, the suggestion that Purely may be under pressure is perhaps a little bit ahead of where the club's at. I don't actually think his job is under quite as much pressure yet as some people are, are suggesting. But... There have been some some situations that, that haven't helped him. And unfortunately, one of those was against Lecce. He brings on Yunus Musa. Sorry to move us off Pulisic, but he brings on Yunus Musa at half time and, and sticks him at right back for Calabria, who was injured. Mm. And in the end, both goals come really, um, it, to some extent, uh, uh, from mistakes that, that Musa makes. Nikki, since you mentioned Yunus Musa, like, let's. Let's talk about not just specifically his role on the weekend, but kind of big picture. Because this is a player that I thought was really ahead of schedule with Milan. When he got there, I thought, mm -hmm. all right, this is a guy who's going to be struggling for minutes off the bench. All of a sudden, he's a starter. Obviously, you know, comes off the bench this past weekend. But what do you think of his performances so far? And as that Milan midfield starts to get healthier, how realistic is it that he's going to stay uh, in that starting eleven? Yeah, so so one pick part of the the Milan picture and this story with Pioli and and how he's under pressure and uh, as a part of it with Pulisic with with all of these um, stories, one connecting thread is the injuries. Milan have had a lot of injuries this season, and in fact, some of the pressure that's being applied to Pioli now is, hey, maybe this is an issue with how you're coaching the players. Maybe some of this um, responsibility falls on the fitness coach, Matteo Osti. And there's even some pressure for Pioli to, to get rid of Osti and, and make a change um, at his fitness coach. Musa, I think, has to some extent been this sort of victim of his own versatility because mm. Pioli says from the from day one has talked about him as a midfielder who he sees can slot into different positions he he wants him to be an attacking midfielder sometimes he can break the lines he also wants him to be a defensive midfielder he also thinks he can play out on the right hand side and then you see that in the game against Lecce where it's okay I need a replacement right back because Calabria is another player who's injured and he puts him at right back and and I just don't think that Moose is ready to play games at right back for Milan. He, he lost um, Sansone on, on the first goal completely to corner. Uh, he was caught way too high up the pitch on the break that led to Lecce's second goal. So again, it's almost a combination of this injury situation, which is club-wide. It doesn't just relate to the Americans. And then... Musa being this player who purely views as versatile, things he can do different things with, when you're that guy and you're still adjusting, as you just said, perhaps ahead of schedule to playing in a new league at a high level, um, to be thrust into all sorts of different positions at once, is it's a big ask. 
Jack of all trades, master of none, right? That's my worry, mm. not only for Yunus Musa, but actually it, it's great that you're talking about right backs because I want to talk about the other Americans at Juventus. And both Timothy Weah and Weston McKinney have been kind of put into this right wing back role and actually competing with each other under Maximo Allegri. Obviously, Timothy Weah is injured right now, but are we seeing a case where the only way both are on the field would be in an injury case in the midfield? Are they both competing, competing excuse me, for this right back role under Maximo um, to some extent they are, but also not completely. And um, I think that Allegri likes them both. He's, he's spoken positively about both of them. He's um, certainly sort of described Weston McKinney the other day as, a, as the devastating player, despite some, some technical issues he still sees in his game. But it's almost complicated just by how good McKenney has looked when he has played at that right wing back slot. You've seen in some games, Allegri has used them both together. He's put McKenney inside as the mezzala, the, the half wing is what they would say in Italy. Um, really a box to box midfield role. But when Weyer hasn't been in the team, he lets McKenney play outside at right wing back. And in my opinion, all of McKenney's best performances this season have been when he has been out there at right wing back. I thought it was exceptional in the win over Fiorentina. Really impressive. And I almost think that role to me just seems to suit his skill set a little more in, in the way that Allegri wants that role to be interpreted. Allegri wants extremely high energy from his wing backs. He wants them to be, uh, and this is something that um, we've heard a bit from from Tim Wyatt, wants them to be defenders first, but he also wants them to to get up and down that, that flank. And Juan Cuadrado did that role really effectively for Juventus for years. And I think Probably um, Allegri almost stumbled into this solution of McKenney being just as hard of a workhorse, just as willing to, to put the running in and to, to get up and down the pitch. But he's looked very strong there and, and he's been there. Where, of course, we know for his previous club sides, for the US men's national team, he tends to play higher up the pitch. He's used to playing more as a forward or a wide forward. And I think that the adjustment for him to the defending... He can get there. I think he's talked about it as a positive that I've got to learn to defend better. But I don't think he does it as well as McKenney right now. So it's it's a bit of a balancing act. I think they definitely can be in the team together. But to me, and just what I've thought watching them play so far, I think McKenney has been the better performer at right wing back. So you're losing something by moving him out inside to make space for, for Tim Weyer. Nikki, perfect timing having you on the show. It is the international break. So, yes, we can talk about the Americans in Syria. We can also talk about the Mexican players in Syria. Not quite as many, but uh, a couple of them on the latest roster as called in by Jimmy Lozano. A 26-player roster for the upcoming CONCACAF Nations League quarterfinals against Honduras with, of course, the ticket to Copa America on the line. The big news here, Julian Quinones has been included in the squad. The Colombian-born winger finally eligible, eligible excuse me, to represent Mexico, all the big names in there, uh, Memo, Chucky, Santi, Santiago Jimenez, Raul Jimenez, uh, Henry Martin, Herc's favorite player in the world, Udiel Antuna makes the squad That's right. Uh, as well. Uh, but let's focus on the two guys that do play in the top flight of Italian soccer, Memo Choa with Salernitana and Johan Vasquez uh, with Genoa. We'll start with Memo, who last season seemed to have a, a great campaign with Salernitana, but boy, Nikki, things have gone downhill quickly here. Zero wins in 12 for Salernitana. They're bottom of the table. Memo's been in and out, mostly in the starting 11. What are they saying about Memo Cho over there in Italy? Oh, it's, it's been a bit of a rollercoaster for Cho in recent weeks because after the last international break, he came back to a new manager, Pippo Inzaghi. And look, Salernitana are having a 
horrible season. They're very much rooted to the bottom of Serie A. Um, yeah, they've conceded basically two goals per game. And Benoit Costil, the, this French goalkeeper who they signed in the summer, replaced him for the game right after he came back from the international break because Inzaghi, who, again, has just been appointed as man, he said, look, this guy's been away on international football. I haven't had a chance to work with him yet, so I'm going to go with the guy who I've had time to work with. And there was a, a moment there where it looked like Ochoa was going to lose his, his spot, but he seems to have reclaimed it. Not that it's doing Salernitana a, a lot of good. Um, again, both goalkeepers have conceded two goals a game, in effect. Um, Ochoa has got, I think, the fourth most saves in all of Serie A, but that really just reflects quite how many chances Salernitana are giving up. I mean, he's getting lots and lots of work to do, um, but that team, um, unfortunately, the, the the appointment of Pippo Inzaghi really has not provided any of the, the new manager bounce that uh, perhaps you might have hoped for. Let's talk about Johan Vasquez, because I'm looking at a guy who's had back-to-back relegations uh, in Serie A uh, with Genoa the first season, Cremonese the second season, and he was finding playing time hard to come by. Here he is playing and thriving now mid-table team in Serie A. What has changed for him? Well, uh, yeah, you know, Genoa are a, a team that have sort of been on the up recently. They've got some some really interesting things happening for them. And and perhaps Vasquez has been less the story there than Albert Goodmanson, who has been absolutely exceptional, one of the real breakout performers for them and has carried them a bit higher up the table. But he's he's absolutely found a role there. And as you say, Genoa are um, upwardly mobile, I would say, at the moment. Probably mid-table is about where it's going to, to end for them. But they're, they're looking like a team that can confidently keep its place in Serie A, especially when... There are others like Salernitana struggling so much behind them. Speaking of keeping their place in, in Serie A, and speaking of Salernitana, any chance uh, that they might be able to claw their way out of the bottom three, Nikki? <laughs> it's a long way back. It's a long way back. Um, <laughs> it's a long season, you know. I think making predictions that are too strong any time before the January transfer window and we don't know what's going to happen in that window, what could change um, is probably a mistake. I think it's worth reminding ourselves that Slanitana were bottom of the table last February when Paolo Sosa was appointed as manager and they clawed themselves out of relegation trouble that season. But they, they, they've made a bit of an art of it, actually. I mean, the last two seasons, 17th and 15th, both times leaving it to the last minute. If you're asking for my current instinct i would say it's probably going to take a second change of manager this season because i don't get the impression wow. that people in zaki is going to be the guy points. to rescue them five points wow mm. another manager from mmojo what a mess that would be all right uh, nikki bandini thanks so much for the time great to have you with us here on football americas hopefully the first of many visits to the program anytime all right, great to have uh, Nikki on with us here on Football Americas. Let's run it back with some Mexicans abroad. Raul Jimenez with his first goal of the season. It came in a 3-1 defeat for Fulham against Aston Villa. Well, okay, Jedi Robinson, nice little assist here. First goal in over 600 days, over 630 to be exact. It's been a while. A little bit of resurgence season for Raul. Keep it going. There you go, the first league goal. Uh, as Herc mentioned, Chucky Lozano with his fifth league goal of the season. Yeah, he's one goal away from doubling his output from last season in Serie A. Three goals, three assists. On of a hell of a run. This is the fifth of the season right here. Yes, as we told you, big winners over SC's fall. They're at 12-0 on the season. You can watch the air it is on ESPN+. Plus. And, of course, you can watch ESPN FC seven times a week. Also right here on ESPN+. Plus. Don't miss a single episode with Dan and the boys. 
right, NWSL Championship this past weekend in San Diego. Of course, the big storyline coming in, the farewell for Ali Krieger and Megan Rapino. but things took a literally unbelievable turn in the third minute of this game when Megan Rapino went down, was clutching her right ankle. After the game, she'd tell us she thought it was her right Achilles. Herc, we were in the stadium, we were shocked. I'm sure watching on TV, you were as well. I mean, you just can't write this. A non-contact injury, never a good thing. Sad way to come out. Game would go on, 24th minute, Gotham FC, Firing down the right wing with Midge Purse. Beats one, beats two, beats three, and gonna pick out Lynn Williams to make it one nothing. Beep, beep. I mean, somebody, anybody stop her. Not one. Okay, right here. Not one. Not two. Not three. Take her on again. But look, in between four players, pinpoint cross, it's 1 0. Gotham FC riding the momentum. They were up 1-0, but O.L. Reign would offer a quick response. 29th minute, Rose Lavelle through on the one-on-one. -on -one. Cool as you like. Uh, cool as you'd like is not really put into perspective. I mean, she gave her the hips. She gave her the eyes. Great run, good through ball, beats everybody, lifts her head up. As soon as she lifts her head up, gives her the fake, hips go one way, ball goes the other. Excellent finish. 38th minute, Gotham from the throw-in. Gonna get very close here, Herc. It's the, everybody's favorite, the double post. I, I mean, you, you can't believe this did not go in. The first one off the post, the second one off the crossbar. Woo, the rain lucky right there. Should have been 2-0 down. Person Sheehan denied from point blank range. Still 1-1. Canadian International. Jordan Heidema finishes at the near post, but the offside flag up. Yeah, she thought she had it. A little too eager on her run. Should have waited just a bit. You can see right there, just offside. Just a good finish, but in an offside position. O.L. Rain missing out on a chance there. And just moments later, Gotham FC go ahead through the World Cup winner from Spain, Esther Gonzalez. Yeah, you know, Gotham just all over in the first half. Set piece by Purse again, and easy finish. Into the second half. What a move from Rose Lavelle. What a pass. Even better. The through ball. Elise Bennett denied. Mandy Hoff the big save. Bennett, what have you done? One of the most ridiculous turns you will see anywhere. Turns on three players, in between two other players, and then off to the races. Bennett should have done better. This should have been all level. It was not. Into stoppage time, and here's where things get really crazy. Hot, well off her line, comes out. Did she touch it with her hands? Well, at first, at first there was no call, but yes, we are gonna go to VAR. Herc, it's pretty clear. She handles it outside the area. You know what that means. Denial of a goal-scoring opportunity. That is a red card. No more subs left, so we gotta put a field player in goal to try and stop Rose Lavelle. And the wall stands tall. How about that, Hurt? No, 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 no. You have to test the goalkeeper who's not a goalkeeper. You have to. Gotham FC, your NWSL champions. Let's hear post-game reaction from San Diego. Allie Krieger, finally champion of the National Women's Soccer League. How does it feel to hear those words? Oh, it feels amazing. Um, I couldn't have jumped a better ending to my career, and I'm so proud of this team. We really buckled in all season long, and we had a plan. We really manifested being here, and we put everything into this season in order to get to this place. I am so proud to be a part of such a, a team and to be a part of something bigger than myself. This is so exciting to celebrate. Midge, an MVP performance in the NWSL Championship. How are you feeling? I, I don't know 
words. Everyone keeps asking me. I'm just, I'm really proud of my team. We keep saying from worst to first, and we did that. It's the American dream. It's a fairy tale. So I'm just, I'm really proud of everybody. Eli, so how does it feel, man? Champion of the NWSL as an owner with Gotham FC. It feels great. It's excited for the team and the girls. They've worked hard. Uh, and just the, uh, after last year, what they went through to come back this year from kind of last to first, what a, what a great story. Just really happy for them and what they're feeling right now. I'm Brady and Eli Manning in the same edition of Football Americas. All right, American Football Americas uh, here on ESPN+. Plus. Congratulations to Eli Manning and the rest of the ownership team over at Gotham FC. What a story. Last place in the table in 2022. Champions of the league in 2023. That's the uh, happy side of the story from the weekend in the NWSL. The sad side, of course, Megan Rapinoe was supposed to be her joyous farewell after a wonderful career. Instead, it comes to an end just three minutes into the game at Snapdragon Stadium. Rapinoe telling us post-match she thought it was an Achilles injury. It's that non-contact injury there on the right leg. An incredibly sad end to a brilliant career. Let's hear from Rapino afterwards. Well, you, you don't always get to have the perfect ending. I've had so many perfect endings, um, you know, and I even just think back to 2019. That was the the most perfect, you know, whole script that you could ever write, you know, personally and as a team, and um, just what it meant. So I think, on balance, you know, I don't think anything. You know that negative about it. I'm I'm most upset that I'm now just uh, a NARP, a normal ass regular person having to do rehab, <laughs> which is <laughs> devastating. For I'm sure if any of you guys have, if any of you NARPs have had an injury, it's terrible. You have to like do your job and you know go to rehab, and this is a long one. Although I'm I'm gonna get the Aaron Rodgers treatment, whatever that is. Um, <laughs> so I'm gonna be calling him or whoever did his surgery because we need to speed this up. But yeah, I thought about it a little bit. I mean, you know, I'm not a religious person or anything. And if there was a God, like this is proof that there isn't. Cause this is um, so yeah, it just, it's just you guys. Like it's just six minutes in, eat my Achilles. I mean, what the It's so bad. As always, Megan Rapino going out with an all-time presser there. Uh, Herc, what do you think had a bigger impact on the outcome of the NWSL Championship? Megan Rapino's injury or Mitch Purse's performance? Without a doubt, Mitch Purse's performance. Uh, listen, that worst to first, let's not forget they went 13 without a win to end the season. 12 of those were consecutive losses. So it, it really is uh, something for this team right here. Uh, Megan Rapino goes down, okay? And Mitch Purse takes over. Uh, it wasn't even a, a question. She was the best player on the field when on the field were two U.S. Uh, national, U.S. women's national team legends in Megan Rapinoe, uh, Ali Krieger, uh, a World Cup winner, uh, current World Cup winner, and a player like Rose Lavelle who absolutely took over in the second half and almost put the rain on her back to level this game, to put him back into the, this game. It was Mitch Purse. I mean, we counted in that highlight reel how many players she beat on the dribble. It was three. And then how many players she beat with thought. It was four, seven, if you add them all together. She also had the pinpoint cross uh, for, for the second one in the set piece. She was the best player on the field. Uh, Megan Rapinoe went down, and the rain had 
plenty of opportunities to come back into this game. Plenty of opportunities to score. They actually should have, and they didn't. And then when they had a field player in goal in the final minute, the final seconds, all you have to do is test the goalkeeper. If you test the goalkeeper, she comes up big, no problem, but you don't. There were countless opportunities for the rain in this game that they did not take advantage of. Uh, Rapino didn't play. They still had a chance. Mitch Purse doesn't play. I don't think Gotham is still in this game. Mm. All right. So, uh, Midge Purse, pride of Montgomery County, Maryland, by the way. Uh, shout out. I think she went to good council high school. Yeah, she was awesome on the night. Uh, and I think her, when you talk about Midge Purse, you think about another player that was missed by the United States at the yeah. World Cup. With all the things that went wrong for Vladko Anonofsky, we focused a lot on Mallory Pugh. What did the U.S. miss for not having her? Um, if Midge Purse could have given the U.S. the type of performances that she gave in this final, taking over, uh, it would have made a big difference uh, in Australia and New Zealand. Here's the thing about Purse and Rapino. I think they're a little bit connected. Rapino plays on the same side that eventually Midge Purse dominates. If Rapino's playing, I don't think Gotham has a steady one-way traffic. And then her, the only, only thing I can add to this is that we were in the stadium. And I know that a lot of the people in the stadium might have not been like, Oh, well, rain fans per se, specifically, right? It's a long ways. There were a lot of people in that stadium that were just Megan Rapino fans. Yeah. The air. I mean, you want to talk about the air going out of an arena, a stadium. We use that phrase all the time in sport. I've never been in a building where the air left as quickly as when Megan Rapino went down. Because it was very, it was very clear almost as soon as it happened. There was nobody around her. You knew that it was something serious. Um, and so I think. Her injury impacts just how good Purse's performance was. And then beyond that, her imagine, put yourself in, in the shoes of the players for OL Reign. This whole run has been about sending Megan Rapino off, and then a few minutes into it, she leaves the field and in tears. I mean, that must have had an impact. Absolutely. It's your leader, it's your teammate, it's your sister. I, I can see, you know, that being the case. And listen, when you're when you have a player of that magnitude, and we have to be honest about who Megan Rapinoe is, she's a very polemic player. She's equally loved as she is hated um, on both sides. Probably loved a lot more. But a player like that is going to generate um, that gravitas, if you will. So when they go down, that will affect uh, the magnitude or the, the, what's the word I'm looking for for your team? The, um, the spirit of your team. Yeah, the spirit. Well, uh, and we know Gotham FC, they were playing for Allie Krieger. She was still on the field, and they were uh, able to get it done there. So congratulations once again to our now colleague. Well, she was our colleague before, but our, uh, our now full-time colleague, Allie Krieger. we got to get her on Football Americas a little bit more often now that she's not uh, as busy. From the NWSL, we go to Major League Soccer. Not the championship round just yet, no. Uh, instead, the playoffs, which just seem to be interminable. Remember, it's best of three in the first round. Only three of the matchups went the distance. Seattle and Dallas, uh, and the only goal of the game in the decisive third match coming from Albert Rusnacker. Yeah, watch this. Draw Apollo, nice little ball. Albert Rusnak playing more in advanced position. Ridiculous game by the Seattle Sounders defense. Again, the best defensive team in the league proves they're the best defensive team in the playoffs. Okay, Sounders TV. Elsewhere in the Western Conference, Houston RSL. This was a 4-5 matchup, so you know it was close. It went to a penalty shootout and a Dynamo getting it done at home. Yeah, who would have thought, huh? Uh, ben Olsen's Houston Dynamo still alive for that double bid. They already won the Open Cup, looking for the MLS Cup now. All right, that's in the West. What about over in the Eastern Conference? Just Columbus and Atlanta that made it to three. And Columbus is moving on as they win the 
third in the best of three by a final score of four to two. Yeah, should we be surprised that they scored eight goals in three games? It's the best offensive team in the league. I mean, they got something special going on in Columbus. I don't know, man. I know you picked Orlando, but Columbus is looking pretty good. I saw what you tweeted. I saw what you tweeted. You got Columbus and Seattle uh, in your dream final is what you're what you're telling everybody there on social media. Here's what the bracket actually looks like. Cincy, Philly, Orlando versus Columbus. That's in the East. In the West, Houston and Sporting Kansas City. Wind back the years on that one. That used to be a great rivalry about a decade ago. And then what's been a great rivalry of late, Seattle Sounders and LAFC. So some great matchups there as we get to the semis. Uh, but before we think about the future of the MLS playoffs, let's look back. Now that we've had a chance to really live through these best of three series, how do we feel about them? Are we cool with it? I absolutely hate it. I hate <laughs> this. I absolutely hate that it's the best of three. Just skip more games, congested schedule, let these players get hurt. Oh, and by the way, <laughs> in between these games, there's going to be a FIFA fixture date. So now you're going to have three weeks, 21 days between games. So think about the last time we had this event happen. It was two years ago when the New England Revolution weren't arguably the best team in Major League Soccer. They were statistically the best team in Major League Soccer in its history. 73 points, the number one team. Nobody could touch them. League MVP, Carlos Hill. You had Matt Turner, who was the goalkeeper of the year, heading in at home to play against New York City FC after 21 days and Boyd the Rust show. They ended up being booted from the MLS Cup playoffs versus New York City FC in a game where you can clearly see they were affected by the long layoff. Now mm -hmm. factor in that long layoff that we're going to see for multiple teams in this FIFA fixture window. And a lot of those teams have players that go on for national team duty. Mm -hmm. As a player, I lived it, and you're seeing it more even now because there is a game for a player every three, four days, it seems like, yeah. all around the world, and players are going down like flies. We see it all the time. I absolutely hate this. You're prioritizing mm -hmm. the dollar. You're prioritizing the gate. You're prioritizing whatever you want besides the sporting. It's just a bad look. It's going to look even more terrible when your stars aren't playing, and now we're going to see a team that's in motion, in favor, in rhythm, Go just stall or go uh, on a stalemate for 21 days and see if they can repick um, that that momentum going forward. I, I just don't like it. I've said it before. There was some part of me that wanted to like the best of three, that thought it could have some benefits, it could accelerate some rivalries if you had a really good postseason series. But the reality, Herc, is the teams that we got here, the one-eight matchups, the two-seven matchups, the three versus six. You don't want three games of that, right? Right. That's kind of average major league soccer. I want three games of a conference final. Like that I could get into. But when it's the third game of a three versus six or a two versus seven, I'm sorry, there's just not on a weekend where, as you're going to see in this show, there was an NWSL championship, a USL final. Those games really feel like they matter. There's trophies on the line. When you get repeat matchups like this, it just doesn't work for me. I think when they look at this as a whole, maybe they bring best of three rap back, but not for the first round. I saw a tweet that you had, though, just a few moments before the show started. You're very negative on this, on this playoff format. But do you like it less or more than the Liga Mekis playoff format? Because it doesn't sound like you're a very big fan of that either. I like it less. I like, I like the MLS one less. I think the Liga Mekis one, just if anything, I mean, they whittled down from 12 to 10, and that 10... If you're 10 or 9 and you lose that first game, you got a second chance, a la the NBA. Mm -hmm. I like that a little bit more than saying, here you go, 66% of the league, go ahead and play. Uh, 
Honestly, I hate them both, but yeah. it's the one that I hate less. Yeah. And we didn't even mention the, the biggest problem with the best of three, which didn't happen this time, but it's the circumstance that you pointed out a couple weeks ago, which is one team wins big, and then another team draws a couple games and advances on penalty shootouts. I think if that had happened this year, they would have had to scratch it next year guaranteed. That didn't happen, so maybe they let it live on another year. But uh, certainly lots to complain about when it comes to the new postseason structure in MLS. And if we know anything about Major League Soccer, there'll be a new playoff structure next year. So uh, we'll have more to complain about then. All right, let's go from Pessimist. MLS Pessimist. to USL. USL Championship Final. Charleston taking on Phoenix Rising in low country. All right. Charleston getting to uh, host the final. We'll pick this one up 36 minutes in. And Charleston, Herc, Charleston grabbed the lead. Markinich with a ridiculous finish. Watch this. Off the half, half bounce, left footer onto the ground. Insane finish. Nick Markinich had a couple chances in the second half to make it two. He didn't, and Phoenix in the 90th minute responds with John Stenberg. Anybody, the captain. anybody on the seven-footer, John Stenberg, right? Look at that tree. How is that? Uh, how is he so alone? Come on. So Charleston seconds away from a title at home, and suddenly we're going to a penalty kick shootout. Now, Phoenix missed their first two penalties. Charleston would miss their third and fourth penalty. So we go to the fifth shooter here. Manuel Arteaga converts, and Phoenix, again, after missing their first two, have a chance to win. Charleston's Derek Dotson steps up, and he misses Hurt. That means Phoenix Rising and Rocco Rios Novo, the goalie hero, are your USL championship final winners. How about that? They beat San Diego in San Diego, Orange County in Orange County. Now the battery in Carolina. Come on! Phoenix lifting the cup. It's hard to find words right now. Uh, this season has been a up and down season for us. Uh, playoffs as well. We uh, been down in games. Come back late. Everyone contributed to this to this performance and all these playoffs games. I'm just I'm just super happy. Super proud of this team, this club, this organization, everyone, the fans. I'm just super happy. Phoenix Rising, your 2023 USL Championship winners. Their first ever USL Championship title, and they become the lowest seed, the sixth seed ever uh, to win the USL Championship. Congratulations to our friends in Phoenix. All right, for more on USL and really all of American soccer at large, so to welcome into the show, John Harks, of course, a member of the 1990 and 94 U.S. World Cup teams and a one-time USL League One Manager of the Year with his now former club, Greenville Triumph. John, great to have you back with us here on Football Americas. Thanks for the time. Thank you very much, my friends. Uh, great to be on with you. Thanks for having me. All right, so tell us a little bit about uh, what you're up to, because as I mentioned there, it's now your former club, Greenville Triumph. You were there for five years uh, in USL League One. Where are you at now on this coaching journey? Uh, yeah, just really taking a breather, to be honest with you. It was a five-year project here, Greenville Triumph, a uh, successful one, and obviously uh, took a major responsibility to grow, help grow the league, USL League One. 
I, I think there's a, there's a responsibility for a lot of you know players that have been in the game if they do want to coach you know to grow the game from the ground up and uh, we are you know we we've done a great job here uh, thanks to the family and Joe Irwin um, celebrating and getting this off the ground and building from scratch a club uh, but having success getting to playoffs every year and you know, it was it was a great ride, good journey for me. I reflect back on that, and now it's just taking some time to uh, look at what's next and uh, the next challenge. We'll see. John, your guy's kind of done it all in, in American soccer. You've played college soccer. You know, you've played in professional ranks, national team ranks. Uh, you've coached. You were a pundit. Why do you think we don't see many young American managers trying to go abroad and coach? Why do you think that is? I still think there's a stigma, uh, to be honest with you. I, I, I think, uh, you know, look, look, there's a lot of, even when I was playing in, in the Premier League, there was a lot of recycled coaches, uh, you know, I guess because they've been in the game, um, that they're trusted a lot more than bringing somebody from the outside in. Uh, mostly in Europe, uh, they tend to look in Europe. Now we're seeing a lot of crossing over internationally, you know, throughout the last probably four or five years. Uh, South America, you know, even Central America, um, but even I think the U.S. as well. You know, I think having guys like Bob Bradley go over there early, um, Jesse Marsh, you know, trying to make a, make a run at it um, gives us the opportunity to maybe take a chance. And so we'll see. You know, a lot of this is not about what you know. It's about who you know in the game. So you got to have those connections, as you guys know. John, John, I'm sorry, you, you mentioned that stigma. You also mentioned Jesse Marsh. We saw that, you know, very first press conference, he was being likened to Ted Lasso. Uh, why do you think that still is? How do you, and how do you think Jesse's, uh, you know, tenure at Leeds went? Um, look, I mean, it's until you're actually in it and managing, you know, from a day-to-day, -day, um, understanding what your resources are, uh, what type of player, style of play, philosophy, everything about that. Uh, it's a big challenge. And so I thought, you know, look, at the end of the day, I give Jesse a lot of uh, credit, you know, having the courage to go in there and taking over a club. Uh, you know, when you think about some of the previous managers there and Tata and, and all the others that have done extremely well. But look, I mean, you're only four or five games, you know, losing games away from struggling and then getting fired. So um, I remember Dave Sarek and Bruce Arena said to me, you're not a a coach until you get hired and then you're not a coach until you get fired and so <laughs> that's part of the game we all know that it's difficult um this is a results oriented business uh you've got to win and uh if you're not winning it makes it very difficult to hold on to a job but i thought yeah i thought he did fairly well john i gotta given your resume ask you about promotion and relegation because you've seen it from all sides here right you've been a league one manager in usl and right now we know usl is at least flirting with the idea of somewhere down the road, maybe doing promotion and relegation. But as a player, when you were over in England, you were also part of an open system. So you know what, as a player, it's really like to, to live and die, you know, in sporting terms, but with your team either going up the ladder or potentially going down. What do you think the yeah. impact of promotion and relegation would be on specifically USL? And then beyond that, if we can ever get MLS to buy in American soccer, you think it would be a net positive or a net negative? You know, I think there's a lot of risk involved in terms of the relegation situation because you have owners here. Um, there was a great book that I read about four or five years ago, James Montague, called The Billionaire's Club. 
And it's a lot of emotional uh, investors that aren't actually emotionally invested in the sport. They just want to be owners. And so they buy a club then to understand the nuances and the, I guess, intricacies of that promotion relegation conversation. They're like, yeah, it's great when you get promoted. Like, you know, you look at Phoenix Rising, you know, winning against Charleston Battery last night and you would think, okay, now they're in the MLS. Uh, for us, we won in 2020 during a COVID year, and you think, okay, we'll jump to the championship level, but it doesn't happen like that. It's more about is your club um, able to spend the money to get up to that next level? So I think it could work. I think, number one, you would have the eyes of the world on you. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a positive, uh, but it has to have, from an investment standpoint, the owners have to understand what that really means. And I think you can do it in the tier structure in the USL and see if you can experiment with that. I know that they were doing a third party kind of trial, kind of looking at that structure to see if that would work. So hopefully that's something that can pull off. I'd love to see it because then every game does matter. And I think it pushes the players, the entertainment level goes up. You get more sponsors involved, more people in the, in the seats. Uh, I think that can grow the game in a, maybe an accelerated way. You know, it's funny, little, little Sebi from the mid-90s is going crazy right now thinking about his D.C. United and how good that D.C. United team was. Let, let's That's take right. your experience, uh, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s of Major League Soccer, John, and, and compare it yeah. to today. The quality of play today, we're seeing the MLS Cup playoffs wind down. It's supposed to be the upper echelon of, of Major League Soccer right now. How would you compare the quality between the two? Is it that stark, that drastic, or, or is there really – not that much a comparison because you think back then it was better. I know that I have a few colleagues who feel that way. Where do you stand there? Look, I think the, the game doesn't change much except the, sometimes the speed of play, how the, the players now um, probably are benefiting from uh, the scientific approach in terms of analyzation until the physical um, recovery. I think that's there's so much more being done on that. Um, so I think that the players now are a little bit quicker and faster, to be honest with you. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're quicker and faster in terms of thought and process and interpreting spaces, but maybe just from more athletes that you see across uh, the board. Uh, so now it's like, look, the game, I think, is accelerated in, in the MLS. I think it's been fantastic to see, um, whereas maybe in the years that we played, in the beginning years, uh, uh, you know, trying to build this this league in 96 and um, in the early 2000s, where maybe it could have actually failed. I think you probably saw four or five really quality high level or six maybe players on each team. Now you're seeing about 14 to 15 quality players. So the depth is there. Um, that's grown tremendously. And you look at the games last night, even watching, um, you know, the USL League One final, I thought, you know, against Charlotte and UNC, uh, North Carolina FC, sorry. Um, I thought the level was good, and I looked at the championship final last night. I thought the two teams really competed extremely well, and then MLS itself, I think, has done a great job. I think there's a lot of quality players now coming over, and you know, even managers that are trying to get into this league. John, we'd be remiss if we had you on and didn't ask about the uh, national team itself. I wonder what you think of the current state of the program and kind of specifically the decision to bring back Greg Berhalter after the last World Cup. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, when you walked away from that last World Cup, everybody was on a high. It's like, wow, we really competed well, didn't concede a lot of goals. And you look at Greg 
Walter, and then obviously all the other drama and the stories that come out um, thereafter. And I think it left a little bit of a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths, but I, I don't think so. I think the program has grown. I think there's great opportunity here for some younger players that are stepping forward, especially the ones that we see overseas that are doing extremely well. But there's also a lot of great American players that are playing in the MLS as well. So I hope that Greg and his staff uh, can continue to have success pushing that. And then obviously in the Nations League, um, we wish them all the best. All we can do is just keep supporting that. The more you try to pick it apart and, and tear it down, uh, that's not my that's not my job. I don't like to do that. So I'm here to support. I was part of a program for 13 years on the national team, and I'm going to continue to support the national team. John, let's support it, but let, let's let's talk about realistic expectations. I mean, it's uh, going to be in the U.S. 2026, the next World Cup. Um, Given what you've seen from this team and it's a home World Cup, what is a realistic expectation for this national team? Can you give me a, you think, quarterfinal, semifinal? Where do you see it? I think it's always dangerous doing that. I mean, you know, that's why I got out of the media. Boys. That's for you. That's for you guys. You know, you like to lead everybody to conflict and create stories. I love it. But you guys do a great job. I love listening to you and I love the, the, the way you guys cover the game. So for me, I think, look, I think – there's anything possible before going into the 2002 World Cup when Bruce Arena took the team through and then we didn't get through after that Germany game with the handball on the line and well Greg Berhalter will tell you about that as well. Hmm. Um, did anybody tell tell us that we would get that far in that World Cup? Definitely not. So I think, you know, the sky's the limit. I'm an optimist as a coach. I think that, um, but I'm also a realist and it's going to take a lot of hard work and they've got to compete. And I think the defensive side of it and the transition work needs to pick up from this young group. If they can do that, then they become a hard team to play against. And when you're a hard team to play against in the World Cup, you have a lot of success and you can continue in. You know, you just got to advance. You got to survive. So hopefully they can do that. We're starting to see the creativity connect in the final third, which is great. Um, yeah, we just hope that they're more well-rounded team and they're a young team. So we got to make sure that they're a smart team when they go into that next World Cup. Sky's the limit, says John Harks about the U.S. at the 2026 World Cup. John, great to have you with us here on Football Americas. Good luck in the future and uh, keep in touch. Let us know what's next. Absolutely, guys. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you guys. Take care. Thanks, John. All right, let's get down into Liga MX. Hurt. Chivas Pumas, big game over the weekend. Picked this one up in the 11th minute. Gabriel Fernandez hammering home for Pumas. And Torre catches all of this. Look at this. Little rebound right there off the half bounce. Guacho Jimenez could only see it go by. Well struck off the laces. Big game between these two as far as the top four is concerned. Fernandez almost makes it two here off the crossbar. Yeah, I mean, just poorly marked off the crossbar. Watch what he minutes can only see it go by. Free kick right here for Alexis Vega. What do you think, Seb? Handball? Well, doesn't matter what I think. It matters what the referees think. And eventually, they settle on a penalty. That's right, we're going to the spot. Alexis Vega going to take it, but not Hurt going to finish it. Not on Julio Gonzalez's watch. Why on earth is Alexis Vega taking this? So telegraphed. You almost saw it coming. Julio Gonzalez not getting beat from there. Belko Panovic, trouble, trouble, as uh, Pumas win by final score of 1-0 over Chivas. All right, let's talk about Alexis Vega, Herc. Is he still a good enough player to make Chivas better, or is he now a bigger part of the problem? What do you think? I mean, at this point, 
he's just part of the problem. El Morbo, right? Like you're tuning in not to see him play. You're almost tuning him to see if he will play and what that means. It's a circus. He's not the first player to be kind of encompassed in this circus that is Chivas. You know, Chivas is a massive team and it's not for everybody. As a player, you can you can kind of get lost in it. And this is where Alexis Vega finds himself. He's, he's only been involved in 5% of the goals this season for Chivas. Uh, they've only won one game with him in the lineup. One game, Seb. Uh, Chivas, not just this season, but for quite some time, has been a better team without Alexis Vega. We're talking about a player that there is a lot of hype around. When he was a young and up-and-comer at Toluca, uh, when he was playing Libertadores, and he scored a few goals in league and a few goals in Libertadores, there was the promise, and you bet on that promise. They bought him because of that promise. And then he gets here and he shows you those flashes, shows you what type of player he potentially could be. But he's not been that player. He's been a shadow of that player. He's a luxury player and one that is expensive and injury prone. Last season, Victor Guzman was a much better player. Chivas were a much better team when Alexis Vega wasn't part of that, when he was mm -hmm. injured. This season, it's the same thing. Right now, all he's doing is causing a distraction. And that's on Panovic. Because if we look at the players, because I know that they love to refer him as an idolo, as an idol, as an icon at Chivas. When we look at the players who have come in and kind of grabbed, not even that icon uh, role, if you will, but just grabbed the opportunity by the horns and taken it. There have been players who have done very well with the big price tag. Rodolfo Pizarro, he did very well at Chivas. Rodolfo Cota, you had Orbelin Pineda, you had all types of players, even Alanis, you know, Osvaldo Alanis. You had players who were there, who were able to handle the pressure, handle the moment. Alexis Vega, he's not one of them. You say he's expensive. You say he's injury prone. He got into all this trouble because he's ill-disciplined. And at, at some point, you thought both Velko Panovic and maybe even higher up, Amari Vergara, the owner, were going to really hold firm here and say, all right, we need to have a team that's disciplined. We're not going to have this guy back. And suddenly he's back and playing and making big plays, having big moments where he's supposed to be the guy. I just had a kid, Herc. They tell you, if you're going to threaten your kids with a punishment, you got to follow through on it. That's, yeah. that's what's happening here at Chivas. There's no... There's no hope if you're a Chivas fan that there's ever going to be discipline in this team because the guy who was partying in the hotel after the Toluca game is is still on the team and still playing. There, there's no discipline. And, and you're telling me here they don't need him. Now, you in the past have said there's a soft landing spot for him at Cruz Azul in, down the road. But if you're Cruz Azul watching this guy right now, I mean, he's got no Mexican national team future. Why would you why would you bet on this player? Because it'll be cheaper than what he would have been if he was successful. That's the thing. And, and, do you and think listen, he's going to be successful at Cruz Azul, Herc? I, I know really you, do. you bought into I this really player do. in the past. I never I have. Really I've looked do. at the productivity. It's never been there. You think you think Alexis Vega is going to turn it around at 20, what is he, 25, 26, this 26 month. years old? 26 this month. Keep waiting. You think he's going to turn it around out of all clubs, Cruz Azul? Turn it around, how so? Because I don't think he's going to have the career that many think he will have. I do think mm. he will be a better player than at Chivas at a reduced rate. I think he's a talented player, but talent can only take you so far. And you're absolutely right, and that's the problem with Chivas. That's the problem with Velko Panovic, who almost you know, went the opposite way with this. Uh, I wanted him to take the penalty kick. I wanted mm. him to make it to, to recuperate, to salvage this footballer. The opposite would have happened. What do you think happens to the rest of those footballers when they see a guy that didn't just make one mistake, didn't just have mm -hmm. two strikes, but it's three strikes a week before he got caught in this indiscipline. He was out in a press conference talking about how he's made mistakes and he's a different player, he's a different person, different man, and boom, there you mm. go. 
if you give him that opportunity like they did and he scores his penalty kick, if I'm a young guy like Martinez, who he took out and he took with him, you know, and he was in, in caught in that dis in discipline, if you will. If I'm a young player and I see this happening, I'm thinking to myself, I'll have a second chance. I'll have a third opportunity. If I'm good enough, it doesn't matter. It's sad, but this is, this is who Alexis Vega and Chivas are today. It's almost better for Ponovic that he missed this. I think it's just uh, time for a clean break. Incredible to think, Kirk, that almost exactly a year ago, we were asking the question whether Alexis Vega should be starting for Mexico uh, at the World Cup, how quickly things have changed. Elsewhere in Liga Mekis, the Herc Semi Bowl, Tigres against Club America. Last day of the season, so it didn't have maybe the uh, Liguilla feel you might have liked. Both teams already uh, clinched their spot in the postseason. Fernando Gorriarán with the uh, ball into the box here. Samir with the header. Big save, Malagón. Yeah, Beg's mentioning that, you know, Tigres rested players. Uh, Nahuel Guzman, the starter, starting goalkeeper, did not play. Uh, don't want to risk yellow card accumulation. And this game, for all purposes, all intents and purposes, was a bit of a snooze fest at times. Totally. For how good these teams are, you thought it would be better. But again, not a whole lot on the line. Quinones in the second half, going to cross it in, skips its way to Alvaro Fidalgo, and he missed an easy one there. Yeah, it's not been the... I know people are high on Fidalgo. I don't think it's been the best of seasons for Fidalgo. He should have done better with it there. And then how about this one? You got a chance right there. You got to put that away. And then another one right there. Cabecita Samir with an unbelievable challenge right there. Yeah, just about on the hour mark. Club America on that beautiful blue top and yellow shorts. Coming close to the goal. Quinones subbed off in the 65th minute, as we told you, just called into the Mexican national team. Great chance late here for, of all people, her Miguelito Layun. Yeah, Miguel Layun makes a meal of it there. Uh, Julian Quinones was not happy coming out, by the way. He did not look pleased with driving in. All right, well, all that frustration, he can uh, take it out with uh, Mexico in the upcoming international window. Here's a look at the play-in and then uh, Liguilla matchups. Of course, America and Monterrey as the top two seeds uh, will get the bye into the quarterfinals. It'll be Tigres, Puebla, Pumas, Chivas. So those teams will play their own little best of three uh, in Liga Mekis. And then the play-in game, Atletico San Luis against Leon and Santos the Nine uh, against Mazatlan. All right, so that'll do it for this edition of Football Americas. What do we have coming up on Thursday? Oh, well, we've got a little bit of a programming oh, yes. note, Herc, because we're oh, not yes. on at the usual time on Thursday. Of course, Thursday uh, is the first game between the United States and Trinidad and Tobago. It's a two-leg quarterfinal in the CONCACAF Nations League. And we are going to be live immediately after the final whistle uh, on Thursday night, breaking down the game, also looking forward to Mexico's game on Friday. And we've got some good guests as well. We're going to have Luis Miguel Echegaray's interview with Paxton Aronson. Uh, and as you saw there, Thomas Rongen, a longtime MLS coach, worked with the U.S. Soccer Federation for a long time, got a movie coming out uh, about one of the many great stories in his life. So we'll talk about that on Thursday's edition of Football Americas. He's Herc. I'm Seb. Thanks for watching. We'll see you in 72.